The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, tonight is going to be a little different than a normal sermon, and if I can frame it up, really what's, what this is is more of, a, more of like a classroom lecture in a theology session than it is a pure sermon. And there are times in the course of the curriculum of the church that we have to kind of pull the car over and reset things theologically. Tonight is going to be one of those times, as I said, it's going to be more of a classroom kind of lecture format to understand this issue Get some high altitude to understand this problem as it's framed and phrased called the Old Testament. People have said, uh, or theologians have said for millennia, that the problem, the chief problem of the Christian, the chief problem of Christianity is that of the Old Testament. What do you do with the Old Testament? What does the Christian do with that first two-thirds of his Bible? All Christian preaching, though, Everything a Christian says, all of our theology is ultimately rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures called the Old Testament. In fact, we call it the Old Testament. If I had my druthers, I wouldn't call it the Old Testament. I would rather call it the Older Testament. Because the New Testament is actually kind of old too, right? It's an ancient faith. We just sang about it. And by the way, Aaron, you, you, I was telling Kim, you are... So gifted and so helpful to match the things we sing with the things we're studying. That's, a, that's a, a lot of work and a gift, and thank you for that. Those things that we sang have such wonderful relevance to these issues. What do you do with the Older Testament? It seems that calling it the Old Testament indicates something. It's ancient, it's old, it's out of date, it's irrelevant, it's maybe even a little odd, but this problem is not new. The problem goes way back. In fact, in the middle of the second century, there was a theologian named Marcion. Maybe you've heard of the Marcionists or Marcionism. The foundation of Marcion's theology was simply this, that the God of the Old Testament is very different than the God of the New Testament. In fact, so different that they are different gods. The Old Testament God was not real, and the New Testament God is the one who is real. He argued that the God of the Old Testament was judgmental, malevolent, indifferent, a distant creator, whereas the God of the New Testament was kind, gracious, merciful, and a loving Savior. That led him to the the suspicion and then to the conviction and then to the teaching that the scriptures of the Old Testament are not the Word of God, that they are in error, that they portray a God who doesn't exist, and the God of the New Testament is the one who did. In fact, he went so far as to say... Every place that the New Testament references or quotes or deals with the Old Testament should be cut out of the Scriptures, should be excised. Now, most believers would abjectly, unquestionably refute and refuse such thinking, just as the early church did, labeling him a heretic. Yet so many in the church today who claim that the Old Testament is the living Word of God, unintentionally become what what we could really call practical Marcionists. In other words, we say that the Old Testament is God's Word, but we act like it's not. We ignore it. We demean it. We um, look away from it. 
We don't deal with it. Frankly, the same thing happens in many pulpits. Listen, the church was never intended by God to have a diet of preaching and teaching deficient of the Old Testament. We have a book of 66 books, not just the New Testament. The truth is that that we miss and overlook and misinterpret much of the New Testament without the Old Testament. It's impossible to understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Have you read Romans? Have you read Hebrews? Have you read the Gospels? Have you heard the lips and the words of the Lord Jesus? But it is a strange thing. If you read in technical journals or in theological books, they actually call this the problem of the Old Testament. And the problem, in quotation marks, of the Old Testament is what is the New Testament Christian to do with these first two-thirds of our, this first two-thirds of our Bible? What, what do we do with this? What does it mean? Does it have any relevance to us? Well, let's just go to class for a minute and, and recover some ground that theologians have done for us for many years and look at the problem of the Old Testament. What relevance and authority does the Old Testament hold for New Testament Christians? I mean, what relevance does it have to you? Now, we would all say it's the Word of God, but do you obey the law? Be careful how you answer that. Because there's large parts of it, we would say, well, yeah, well sure, we, we like the Ten Commandments. We obey this part. But have you read Leviticus 19? Have you read the fact that if you are wearing a, uh, two different uh, uh, kinds of garments tonight, if you're wearing cotton and some kind of polyester, uh, did you know that you are, you are in sin do you like shrimp? Do you, this is Kansas City. Do you like pork? I mean, what part of the law do you really want to obey? I think it should be when we, when we drive into Kansas City, she's, Kansas City should say, Kansas City, a city devoted to Acts chapter 10. Remember Acts 10 where the sheep was dropped down, rise, kill, eat, all the unclean animals including pigs, which had to have barbecue in mind. Walter Kaiser is perhaps the leading Old Testament theologian in our day, someone who I respect deeply. He says this, the designation of the, designation of the Old Testament is in itself um, anachronistic, for nowhere in the first 39 books of the Bible does the term occur. Think about that. Nowhere in the first 39 books does it say, by the way, you are now reading the Old Testament. Actually, it was in the Alexandrian church under the church father Origen, about 185 to 254, right in there, who gave this designation, this nomenclature, based in part on God's promise in Jeremiah 31 of a new covenant, a new promise, hence the New Testament. But both the label and the translation are misleading. It's only ecclesiastical convention that dictates our continued use of this term for that group of the biblical books that the Jews refer to as the writings, the scriptures, and the law and the prophets. Now, just for a moment, I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 15. Because the problem of the Old Testament is not rooted in the mid-2nd century with Marcion. Remember the early church? 
uh, is converted largely into the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. They begin to outreach and go back to their homes. The gospel is getting traction. People are being converted. People are being saved. Jews and Gentiles alike are coming to faith in Christ. Remember, Christ, the Jewish Messiah, even we read this morning in, in Acts chapter 24, Felix and Festus, they're looking at Christianity as just a sect of the Nazarenes as a subset of the Jews. And yet Gentiles are coming into this this new religion. Jews are now bowing the knee to Jesus as Messiah. Everyone's saying, so what happened to, what happened to Judaism? What, what happened to the Old Testament? What, what happened to the law? So the problem, as it were, of the Old Testament, the Old Testament was, was first framed up in the early church. And you see it in full bloom here in Acts 15. Look at verse 1. The men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren... What were they teaching? Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You know, there's an argument that goes back and forth. James lends wisdom to that. We could even go over to uh, uh, Galatians chapter 2. We won't do this now, but man, Peter, wow, does he get a spiritual spanking from Paul. Because Peter actually goes into Gentile areas and tells them if they really want to be a Christian, the first thing they need to do is be circumcised and become a Jew to become a Christian. This was the first pope, okay? Said tongue-in-cheek. Very fallible man. And so Paul has to publicly, face-to-face, rebuke Peter for such error. I hope you understand I was joking when I said he's the first pope. If the pope is infallible, Peter didn't do a very good job as the first one. So these people in Acts are saying, hang on, you, you, have to, you have to obey certain aspects of the law to be saved as a new Christian. Do you see where they're wrestling with the Old Testament? What do we do with circumcision? What do we do with all this? What about the law? Well, how has church history answered this problem of the Old Testament? Well, let's take a little historical tour. I've already talked about Marcion. Uh, Marcion. Uh, the first way that the church began to answer it is back in the 200s. Heretical Marcionism, that second century theologian believing God was different in the Old and New Testament. He was labeled a heretic. He rejected the Old Testament outright as God's word. Very few people would do that today. Another way the church responded was after Luther, and it's Neo-Lutheranism. That was Protestantism has reverberated with, with Luther's epic line in the sand of the gospel of grace that he drew with the Catholic Church, yet in the course of Luther's study, he came to identify the ritualistic and works-oriented approach to salvation of Roman Catholicism with the Old Testament law. That's an important distinction. And when you study uh, Nazi history, when you, when you study uh, the, the, the uh, Bardian history, Karl Barth, when you study how these men came to understand their, their disdain for the Jews, you understand it's rooted in this. Luther went backwards. Most of the Catholic kind of hangovers with, the, with the, uh, the way they dressed and funny hats and all of their robes and, and their, their incense and all that. That's just a, that's a theological hangover from the restrictions of the law. And so Luther saw that the Catholic Church was so rooted in ritualistic gnomism, ritualistic use of the law, that he rejected it. In a, and he went too far, honestly. Many early Protestants developed a disdain for not only the Old Testament, 
but for the Jews as well. On the other side, you have something called radical theonomy. Some have believed that God's governmental rule in the Old Testament is his continuing blueprint for spiritual rule, for social government, for, for family rule, for the theonomist, continuity, it's an important term, between the Testaments is the guiding principle of hermeneutics. In other words, it's the same. The church is Israel. Israel is the church. Old Testament revelation of God's law and rule is rendered primary then in the pulpit. Oh, sure, there's certain things they wouldn't do, but there's a lot of things that they would. And they would bow the knee to say, yes, it's said in the Old Testament, therefore it's right for us today. Then there's one that we have to be particularly careful of, extreme dispensationalism. Some divide the Bible into at least two, and if you have old Clarence Larkin's book, up to seven dispensations. Anyone remember Clarence Larkin? You know, dispensational truth and all those drawings, great drawings. I, I grew up on that. In its extremity, dispensationalism relegates the Old Testament to the age of law and the New Testament to the age of grace. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Are you saying there's no law in the New Testament? What does James say? Obey the law of Christ. He came not to nullify the law, but to fulfill the law. Are we also saying there's no grace in the law? Are sinners saved by law or by grace in the Old Testament? Now let's talk for a moment. Of, I'm going to give you a, just a, a laundry list, a grocery list of how the problem of the Old Testament is applied. This is ten ways that I think the Old Testament has, has come to be trivialized in the life of a New Testament believer. Some in more profound ways than others. But if you're taking notes, this might be a little list that you can talk about um, in small groups, a little list you can talk about with your family, and say, are, are there any ways that we're slipping into any of these errors of trivializing the Old Testament? The first uh, way that we, we uh, trivialize the Old Testament is avoidance. We just avoid it. We don't read it. Even though, get this, Walter Kaiser purports that the Old Testament, in reference and in quotation and in its existence, in the Old and in the New, comprises 77% of the Scripture. And you say, wow, that's a, that's a lot. I mean, when you look at it, it's only about two-thirds. How can you go to 77%? Well, I think that what he's hinting at is when you begin with with an open eye reading what the New Testament really uses as its foundation, as its source, you realize that it's grounded thoroughly in the Old Testament. So some people avoid it. They just don't read it. Oh, come on. And it typically goes like this. You know it. You've experienced this. Let's read the Bible. Genesis, like it. Creation, fall, flood, nations, moving through, a very high drama. Genesis 22, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Uh, we, 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 we love that. We get into Exodus. We saw the movie, right? We love Exodus. We get into Leviticus, and at least the guys like Leviticus. It's a bloody book. Lots of, lots of critters getting killed in Leviticus. And typically, people get to Numbers, and their Bible reading plans go out the window. Yet Numbers, man, Numbers is so precious because of the amount of grace, not even law, grace that God exhibits in these knuckle-headed Israelites who are putting their, their prize and their delight and their glory and their confidence in their numbers rather than in the God who ordained those numbers. 
get into the Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, and people start saying, now, how does this fit? And where is Isaiah here? And how does, how does the Psalms come out of this David? And, and we get confused. It's not that confusing. Can I suggest that you get a very, very inexpensive, get a chronological Bible and just keep it beside your regular Bible and just reference it to see what's going on. Also, just read the cross-references beside your, your, um, uh, your text in your Bible and see where, where is this psalm referencing in, in history? Where is this history referenced in the New Testament? And make sure you're collating that as you're studying. But the main issue here is avoidance. Just We don't read the Old Testament. Let me tell you, if you... If you will take the time to read it, it is a page turner. It's no, one of the main apologetics in my own heart for the reality of God and the existence of this book as a supernatural book is no one would write the Old Testament and its history unless it was inspired. Which religion exonerates its greatest hero of the Old Testament as an adulterous murderer? Only God does that. Why did he do that? Why is David, a man after God's own heart, exhibited that way? Why is Moses disallowed to go into the promised land because of his sin? Why, why do we see these errors in these great leaders, great leaders? Very clear, God is saying, the best that Israel had was David. We long for a greater Messiah, who's the son of David because of the promise. Avoidance. A second way that the, the Old Testament is trivialized is it's a supplemental, it's called a supplemental use of the Old Testament. In other words, we only use the, the Old Testament in reference to the New. We're New Testament Christians. We're only going to deal with the New, and when we can reference the Old, that helps us. We're okay with that, but we're not going to study it in and of itself. A third way is illustrative. Just using the Old Testament to illustrate either New Testament material or, or New Testament principles. We so disregard the authorial intent so often in the Old Testament. I don't want to upset anyone's apple cart, but did you know when Joseph runs from Potiphar's wife and Potiphar finds him, that this might shock you, but was Moses writing Genesis and just saying, okay, I want to establish that God is the creator. I want to establish sin came into the world. I want to establish uh, where, where the nations came from and the Tower of Babel and the choice of Abraham and the choosing of the Jews. And I'm going to establish, establish, establish. And then he says, Up, oh, I'm sure by now, Moses is saying as he's writing, I'm sure by now they need, they need some practical help. So we're going to put Joseph and Potiphar's wife in there just so they can have some help on sexual temptation. Here's the deal. The example of Joseph and Potiphar's wife has very little to do with sexual temptation. You know what Joseph and Potiphar's wife is about? God wants Joseph in jail. That's what it's about. For something he didn't do. He's down there for two years before he's even discovered as a, a, an interpreter of dreams. Yes, we can learn from Joseph. And we'll, we'll get there. Yes, he's an example that we should follow. But that's secondary and collateral to the main issue, which is God wants Joseph in jail to glorify his name and to ultimately preserve the Jewish nation. How about the second Samuel? Um, you know, is, 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 
is the writer writing along talking about David, Saul, and, and, and then David, and then uh, people need some, some help with, with, um, with understanding sexual sin, so he puts in you know, David and Bathsheba. That's how usually we teach that, right? Here's how to avoid um, uh, sexual temptation by, by not doing what David did. I heard a, a, really a really good sermon one time called David and the Internet out of that text, um, just talking about avoiding you know, tempting situations. But you know why that's there? Was the writer saying, well, they need a practical application? No. The writer put that in there so that we could see that David was flawed at his core and still was a man after God's own heart and still God used him and still there's a greater David to come down the road. That the best Israel had to offer was nothing like the, original, not, nothing like the ultimate Savior in Christ. Don't just use the Bible, use the um, Old Testament illustratively. Another one is proof texting. Number four, proof texting. In other words, using the Old Testament for dogmatic support rather than treating its passages seriously in context. I think we've done this before, but take your Bibles for a minute and turn back over to Genesis chapter 1. Let me say before we do this little exercise, I believe strongly, firmly, passionately and convictingly in a six-day, literal, 24-hour cycle creation. Strongly. I, I will, that is a hill that I will die on. If we can't believe the first book of the Bible, where do we start? However, in our generation, we've turned Genesis 1 into apologetic about creation when, when it's really not about the creation. You're going, wait a minute, have you read Genesis 1, Rick? I have, actually. Let's see, just by a simple reading, let's see what is Genesis 1 about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, verse 7, God made, verse 8, God called. Then God said, verse 9, God called, verse 10. Are you seeing a pattern here? What is Genesis 1 about? The Creator. Yes, we can get our theology of creation from that. But don't miss the fact that Genesis 1 is not just some place for us to run to fight the evolutionists. Listen, an evolutionist could be convinced in a six-day creation and still not be saved. He needs Christ. I'm all for arguing against the creationist. I mean, against, let me rephrase that. I'm all for arguing against the evolutionist on, on the basis of Genesis 1 and 2. I love that. But let's not take proof texting. That's When Moses wrote Genesis 1, there were no evolutionists. He assumed that everyone was a creationist. Proof texting. Gideon's fleece. How about that for a proof text? You, you, well, we hear what you, know, you put out a fleece to see if this is what the Lord wants. Do you, really, do you really understand what that means? Do you really understand what testing God means? That means I, uh, in, uh, uh, in, on a humid morning, go out and put a piece of leather 
and see if the ground all around it is damp and the piece of leather is dry. And conversely, you go out the next day and see if it's, it's wet and the ground's all dry. I mean, that's, that's a pretty serious test. So be careful even talking about putting out fleeces. It's just proof texting. Malachi 3.10 is used for bringing in finances into our church budget. Bring ye the tithes into the storehouse. Hey, I, I want you to give to the church. But don't go to that text. That was a temple tax, and it was 37%, and it was required just as a tax was required. And if you didn't give it, they came and got it. It's not free will giving like 2 Corinthians 8 was. Just proof texting. Number five, a trivialized use of the Old Testament is selective use. Only using our favorite and familiar passages and rarely the entire books taken at face value. We love the story of David. Have you, have you read the story of Agag? That's a brutal story. Have you read the story of coming into the land of Canaan and killing everyone? Even the animals? God did not whisper anything in the Old Testament. This is His way of revealing Himself. And some people can fall into the trap of just taking certain parts of it and liking it and, and, and leaving the rest. I mean, most of us know the story of Job, right? Wrong. We know Job 1 and 2. Did you know there's 40 more chapters in Job, Job is not about suffering. Job is about theologizing on the goodness of God and how a man can be right before God. That's what Job is about. And it's set up because of his suffering. Just take different bits and pieces. Number six, moralizing. Moralizing the Old Testament. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, just using the Old Testament narratives as biographical texts to find lessons and morals and examples to follow. Usually the, the, the focal character in a respective Old Testament is supposed to be God, and yet we miss God. I love going to Daniel chapter 1 and 2 and seeing you know, the, the faith of Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and how these young men stood up for God, and that's a good example for us. But if we miss God, we've really missed the main character in those chapters. Sometimes in this moralizing, God is ignored at the use of being just pragmatic. Number seven, spiritualizing. It's so easy, spiritualizing of the Old Testament. Using Old Testament data allegorically. Stuff that was meant for national geographical Israel and applying it to us. You know, the prayer of Jabez. You've heard, remember, you guys remember that a few years ago, the prayer of Jabez, you know, I want to increase my borders and, and it was talking about praying for prosperity. The God just wanted a bigger field. That's all Jabez wanted. He didn't want to expand his borders and reach the world with his finances. He just wanted a bigger field. He just wanted more land. Spiritualize it and use it allegorically. This is especially convenient uh, hermeneutically uh, for difficult texts. Uh, if we don't understand it, let's just, let's just spiritualize it. Number eight, reversed use of the Old Testament. A reversed use. What is that? Reading the Old Testament, listen, reading the Old Testament through a New Testament lens rather than the New Testament, what? Through an Old Testament lens. We believe, especially at Mission Road Bible Church, in progressive revelation. 
You say, well, what does that mean? Well, a covenantal theological construct would look at the Old Testament and import the church and church dynamics back into Old Testament systems and context where the church didn't even exist until Acts chapter 2. It's important to read the New Testament in light of the Old and be careful unless you are given permission by the Holy Spirit to read the Old Testament in light of the New. Let me tell you where this came into my uh, hermeneutical understanding very early in my seminary career. I was, um, I was doing a paper, and uh, I, I, I thought I was fairly well equipped in understanding Old Testament and New Testament. And I uh, was reading in a, a book in Genesis by a very renowned author that you all would know and respect. And remember coming to the, the person of Joseph. And he had 50 ways Joseph is a type of Christ. Man, they were good. They were really creative. Problem was, the New Testament just didn't affirm it. Just didn't affirm it. Same author got into Exodus, and this is, the, I kid you not, he said, God provided manna to feed people just as God provides his word to feed us. He says, isn't it interesting that manna would serve as a type of the Bible. Oh, what does it mean? Because it was small and white, and you could take it with you, just like pocket New Testaments are. It's in my library. I won't be using that in Deuteronomy, though. It's reverse use. Number nine, and this, is, this one we have to be careful with. If you haven't been paying attention yet, pay attention now lest you misunderstand. This is an error, and that's a Christologized use of the Old Testament. Big word, Christologized. That means importing the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Messiah, into parts of the Old Testament where He is not. Finding Jesus in every passage of the Old Testament. I was once in a Bible study that taught the, the, the elements of the tabernacle and every single thing down to the lampstand had something to do with Jesus and his life. That's creative. It's just not true. I mean, that's, that kind of interpretation goes back to origin. And let's, we've talked about this before, going back to the great divide. There was Origen who became the Catholic theologian and Augustine who became the Protestant theologian. Augustine believed predominantly in a literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to interpretation. Origen believed in, in an allegorical level approach. In other words, it's allegorical. There are multiple levels to be found in the text. That's why the Catholic Church will still tell you today you can't really understand the text. Only the priest and ultimately only the Vatican can understand and interpret the text. Jesus is not in every passage in the Old Testament. He's in a lot, but he's not in, in every one. Remember on the road to Emmaus? Jesus appears. And he begins explaining every, Luke 24, everywhere he was, was in the Old Testament. Remember that? You know the road to Emmaus was only six miles long? He didn't explain from Genesis all the way through because he's not in every chapter. I love what Spurgeon says. In every text, I make a beeline to the cross. And what he's saying is the cross and the gospel and Jesus are not in every text, but from any text I can get to the cross. Very different perspective. 
one more, and I have to say this because of what we're seeing on the bookshelves in Barnes & Noble these days. The magical use of the Old Testament, magical use, and by that I mean using the Old Testament as a code book for deciphering, the Da Vinci Code, the Bible Code. It's not a code book. You know what we're saying when we believe that stuff? We're saying that God fundamentally has a speech impediment. That he could not say what he mean, meant and meant what he said. Therefore, he spoke in code. I was in a Sunday school class in my college year, uh, my freshman year as a, as a college student in, in, a, in, a, in the Baptist church we grew up in, and the Sunday school teacher, I remember him up front, and he was saying, we would love to know what the book of Revelation is, but the book of Revelation is impossible to understand because there was a code book that deciphered all of that uh, 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 um, uh, imagery, and that code book has been lost long ago. So we're just on our own to kind of figure out what it means to us. Really? Don't. I mean, that's junk. Garbage. You see this Bible code stuff? They put the Bible through a computer and they, they use the Hebrew language and they say, you know, every 27 letters is this and it spells that and it spells Henry Kissinger, he's the Antichrist. Come on, please. Why do you think the, the Old Testament is neglected in contemporary pulpits? This is another little list. This is mostly for those of us who are teachers, but I think it's important for us to hear. This is a lot of grocery lists tonight, I know, but I think, first of all, it's ignorance. I think pastors are largely untrained in Old Testament data. I love the Expositor Seminary because these guys are learning Hebrew. They are learning Bible survey. They are learning Old Testament survey, Old Testament introduction, Old Testament data and theology. Very few have taken the time to understand and apply the Old Testament, and personal neglect of the Old Testament in the preacher's life will lead to a neglect in the pulpit. Another reason it's neglected in the pulpit is perceived ritualistic data. Just trivia. Some think the Old Testament is so preoccupied with boring, irrelevant rituals rendered obsolete with Christ's final sacrifice on the cross. What can we possibly learn from the Day of Atonement? Well, quite a bit. Another reason it's not preached is distance. Since the Old Testament concerns itself with times, cultures, and nations far removed from our own, the Old Testament is considered old and insignificant to the Christian's life in the 21st century. But did you know, get this, there is a, and I think this through, between us and the New Testament, a couple thousand years, there's greater distance between the New Testament and parts of the Old Testament than us and the New Testament. And yet they didn't seem as old, irrelevant, out of date, not culturally relevant. I think another reason it's neglected in the pulpit, and this one's tough, is it has and contains disturbing theology proper. God is wrathful and vengeful. God destroys cities for their wickedness. God tells the nation of Israel to go and dispossess the Canaanites of land, which some people say is unfair. God is strict. And we look at that, and it's easy to seem like kind of Marcion might have had something going here until you read Revelation 19 and you see Jesus Christ returning with his robe dipped in blood. Same God. The God here's, think of this. The God of the Old Testament, are you ready for this? Is Jesus. He is Jesus. He is the incarnation. No difference. 
See, another reason it's not preached is difficulty. It's hard. I've been reading Deuteronomy for the past few weeks and thought, what was I thinking? I'm having trouble pronouncing a lot of the words, much less preaching on these words. Some of those passages are hard to make sense of. And in length, I mean, you got the guy, one of the Puritans who, who preached for 40 years to the book of Isaiah. I'm all about Isaiah. I like Isaiah. Come on, 40 years? How do we solve the problem of the Old Testament in our life? How do we solve? Well, I want to give you just a, a little list of Scripture. Now we're going to turn to God's Word and let it answer itself. Look over at 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let's see what the Bible, the New Testament, actually confirms about the Old Testament. In 2 Timothy 3, this is so, so important. Uh, let's pick it up in verse... We usually read verse 16 without looking back at what precedes it. Um, verse 13, 2 Timothy 3. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and be deceived. You, however, in opposition to them, continue in the things you've learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings. By the way, we learn in chapter 1, that was through his mom and grandmom. Moms and grandmoms do not ever, ever underestimate the spiritual impact of your teaching and your example with young people. Then he says this, you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What scriptures is he talking about here? The New Testament hadn't been completed yet. He's talking about the Older Testament. What, this is profound. Paul is talking about Timothy and saying, your understanding of the Older Testament gave you the wisdom to know that Jesus is the Christ and to bring you to faith. In him. Now, I don't want to upset anyone's apple cart, but what's the next verse say? All scripture is inspired by God, and we usually use that verse to talk about the entire Bible, and I'm okay with that. But in its context, it's talking about the Older Testament. How's the Old Testament useful? Profitable for teaching. Reproof for correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every work. Yes, I would apply that to the entirety of the Bible, but the entirety includes the Old Testament, which is in context here, what it's referencing. Do you see that? And when you say, oh, the Old Testament was for then, now we have the New Testament. Not at all. So then he says, he goes on, <laughs> solemnly charge you, verse 1, the presence of God. Christ Jesus, who's able to judge the living and the dead, preach the word. That means the Bible and the New Testament. But in context, friends, what is it referring to? What's the word, the closest antecedent? Scriptures, which include the Old Testament. Turn back over to Deuteronomy chapter 6 for a moment. Can't wait to get to this section in the book of Deuteronomy. The great Shema. I love what the Old Testament is in. And we, we're in such a good position to do this. Parents, please, please plug in right now. Parents, please. This is our text. Now, this is the commandment. 
statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going to over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, that you may greatly multiply, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is unified, He's one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Do you think that's passed away? Doesn't that remind you of what the Savior may have said, quoting this? These words which I have commanded you shall do, that shall be on your heart. Now look at this. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. This is talking about a strategy for passing on generational spirituality in a comprehensive dimension. Look back at verse 5. All your heart, all your soul, all your might. Well, if you do it all the time, guess when you're going to be talking about the things of God? When you sit, when you walk, when you're, uh, when you're, when you're lying down, when you're rising up. Why? Look at verse 12. That you do not forget the Lord. That's why. Verse 18, that you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And this is, this is where I'm going with this. Verse 20, so that, watch this, when your son asks in time to come, saying, what do these testimonies and statutes and judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? There it is. Guys, men, eye contact, all right? This is our passage as fathers and especially as parents. They were teaching the law to their children in such a way that it provoked the kids to say, what does this mean? We have that law. And when we teach the law, the Old Testament law, and we'll find out what that is and what that isn't in our next study, when we teach that, it should provoke our children to say, what's that about? Why obey God? And then the rest of the chapter, I can't wait till we get here, he basically says, it's really simple. Obey God, get blessing. Disobey God, Get in trouble. A two-year-old can understand that. So can we as well. We are to provoke the same response that these parents did, which meant that when they were devoting their Lord in all their heart, all their mind, all their strength, which created a context where no matter what they were doing, sitting down, rising up, eating, drinking, no matter what, God was in the conversation that made kids say, what does that mean? I love, I, I have this underlined in red in my Bible. When your son asks you, do we live lives so attached to the Old Testament that teaching it demands our kids say, what is that? That's a good question. That's what we're going to hopefully answer as we move through the book of Deuteronomy. Look at Ezra. Just a couple more. Ezra. Chapter 7. Such a sweet progression here. Remember, 
in Deuteronomy 17, the king was called to write a copy of the law. Genesis through Deuteronomy, which is interesting. Get this, the king was called with his own hand to write a copy of the law. Why would God do that? So that he could never say, I didn't know the law said that. Here's your copy, king. Here's your copy, King Ahab. Did you read this? Well, obviously that stopped happening after a while, but some, some king did it and hid a copy in the ruins of the temple. They find the law, and you know what happens. There's revival that breaks out, for, and then Ezra. Ezra set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it and to teach its statutes and its ordinances in Israel. We're going to set our heart to study and learn and practice it too. Now, let me just, a couple of footnotes and we'll be, we'll be done for tonight, okay? I am not, your pastor is not a theonomist. I don't believe that all of the Old Testament law is practical for the New Testament Christian. In our next study, before we get into Deuteronomy 1, it's going to be what about the law? We, we said, what does the New Testament, what does the Old Testament have to do with the Christian? The next study is going to be what does the law have to do with the Christian? Why the law? I mean, if you, again, just read Leviticus 19. There's some strange laws in there. Hairstyles, tattoos, walking here, walking in there, not touching dead things. What does that have to do with us? What does it really have to do with us? Well, I don't believe that it has to do with us in any way for justifying grace. What had happened, and this is where we get into some silly language, but this is what D.A. Carson, Carson calls Second Temple Variegated Nomism. Hang on. Second Temple, this is the, the temple was after Solomon, it was rebuilt by Herod. Variegated, multidimensional Nomism, views of the law, where they actually believed that the law, when obeyed in certain categories and with a certain might, could actually justify and save you. That's why we have Romans, by the way, and Galatians. That's what we're going to deal with when we get into chapters 3, 4, and 5, is Paul's fighting that and saying, no, the law cannot save you. But get this, the law, can't, by the way, the law could never save anyone. No Old Testament Jew was ever saved by the law, ever. They were saved by grace, through faith, in God's revealed means. God said, sacrifice this animal, and I'll forgive you. They believed God, they sacrificed the animal, and they were forgiven. That's Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. You say, well, did that forgiveness, did that really forgive them? No, Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats can never forgive anyway. God, being outside of time, said, I know your heart. I'm applying the blood of Christ to that. That's what Hebrews says. But did they say, I'm sacrificing this animal because one day on a hill far away there will be a Savior crucified on a cross with His mother and an apostle standing at His side and He'll rise from the dead three days. They didn't know that. You know what they do? Take the animal, kill the animal, I'll forgive you. Yes, sir. That's what they knew. By grace, through faith, in God's revealed sacrificial system. The law never saved anyone. The law was never intended to save anyone. However, the law in its structure and in its function was intended to sanctify and to make holy. 
see this when we come back, but let me give you a little, little um, preview of where we're going. Jesus said all that's in the Law and the Prophets, everything in the Law and the Prophets, all those little nuances, everything comes down to this. It teaches you how to love God, what? And to love others. The whole Law and the Prophets, you can look at every verse and say, this is teaching me something about loving God and something about, lo- or something about loving others or a combination of the two. And that's what happens after you're saved, not in order to get saved. And the Jews had reversed that. That's why Paul had to say, look, the law doesn't justify. That's why he seems to be beating up the law. And yet the same Paul, I'm getting into our study for next time, the same Paul in 2 Timothy says, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, instructively. And that goes back to us reorienting our understanding from law to Torah. From law, which is command and obey, to Torah, which is instruction and blessing. Once you understand that, you'll see why every verse in Psalm 119 says, Oh, how I love, and we say, the Word of God. Not exactly. He says, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord. That stuff we say, Don't touch dead things. Don't do this. Do that. Don't do that. The psalmist is saying, I love your law. Why did he say that? You're going to have to come back next time. Figure that out. Law never saved anyone. Only Christ And that's what the book of Romans is going to instruct us on. But listen, beloved members and people of Mission Road Bible Church, let's not be practical Marcionists. We say we believe the Old Testament is God's Word, but we do nothing to respond to it being God's Word. So, this week, Old Testament, next study will be the law and the Christian, then there's a surprise. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but our next study will be a surprise in Deuteronomy as we begin. And um, Bob, you, you tell surprises better than me. I, but just, just come that, that first study of Deuteronomy and you might be a little surprised how we're going to begin the book. No, I'm not going to dress up as Moses. We're not going to have a play. You will rarely get anything created from me except open to verse 1. That's about as creative as I can get. But it will be encouraging, I think. Father, give us a love for your word, a love for your truth, a love for the Older Testament that gives us the wisdom we need to understand the gospel and come to Christ. Father, make us not neglected and give us hope in sanctifying grace that we can find by obeying you in the categories of the law and the categories of the Old Testament to teach us to love you and to love others. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.